Hi, and welcome to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness, your podcast stop off for all those conversations you wish we were having about identity, racism, and of course, whiteness. Now, here on the show, I refer to whiteness as a social structure based on a hierarchy of human value rooted in a history of empire and slavery, which continues to shape our everyday, and more specifically, the everyday inequalities of modern Britain. Now, I realise that that is not the most accessible definition, but I'm doing my best with um, what are complex uh, ideas. And I'm sure our guest today will have his own views on what the term whiteness means. Um, to discuss this particularly burning topic, I'm joined by British stand-up comedian, writer and presenter, Dane Baptist. Welcome, Dane. Thank you for having me, Doctor. Pleasure. Thanks for having you on. Um, now, you may have caught Dane live at the Apollo on the BBC, on Comedy Central, as well as Mock the Week or 8 Out of 10 Cats. And in 2014, Dane made comedy history as the first black British act to be nominated for a comedy award at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. In 2015, Dane was also the first black British comedian to be nominated for the Chortle Awards, a prestigious UK award ceremony. And he's also the brains behind the first black British sitcom in the last 20 years. That's Sunny D, which is currently available on iPlayer and a show which will soon be migrating to the US. Now, Dane, that's quite a lot of firsts under your belt and you're not that old. How do you feel about being the first on so many fronts? in an industry that you know didn't arrive on the scene yesterday yeah i i, I mean it's a uh, on, on one hand you can look at it as quite uh worrying or harrowing that the fact that it's taken so long for a black britain to actually be nominated for these awards or to be recognized within the industry when you consider the uh wealth of contributions that have been made by black creatives to british comedy from your lenny henry's to your felix dexter's to your Curtis Walkers and you know uh, Leah Muhammad, Loella Gideons, Angela Mars, and so many people that have contributed and created so many amazing aesthetics for both uh, stage and screen. Um, but yeah, but at the same time, you know, it's a real privilege to uh, have been nominated, and I like to think that my nomination was a catalyst for uh, the comedy industry on a larger scale to realise that uh, black uh, comics are both relatable and commercially viable, and I really feel like it's definitely contributed to a real change in the state of uh or the landscape of british comedy so i really embrace it it's uh, nice to be considered a trailblazer by some um but yeah it's really about being a brick in a wall and and then yeah just leaving the proverbial door open for other black and brown creatives to uh, observe the same opportunities and what made you want to go into comedy in the first place and, and what kind of changes would you say you've seen in the industry over the course of your career if any when it comes to race and representation and racism more broadly uh, I think comedy was always a part of my being or my complex as a child I feel like it was always uh, I went to a predominantly white school and uh, comedy was always a good way of ice breaking and trying to endear myself or rapport build with my uh, peers and uh, yeah, I always wish to really appreciate the freedom that you got with comedy. I'd perform like skits and little sketches in a class assembly or in school assembly and uh, always elicited laughter. I always enjoyed, enjoyed the freedom of not having my uh, narrative curtailed by uh, teachers or academic staff. So that was always what I enjoyed about comedy. And it was just something I always enjoyed. I just, it was very hard to find any kind of uh, predecessors to kind of project onto or to, uh, I guess, aspire to be like. So 
as a dual citizen, I spent a lot of time in the States, so I kind of identified very closely with a lot more American comics at the time. I suppose I would have been very much into like your Eddie Murphy's, uh, Chris Rock, um, D.L. Hughley. Just the list kind of goes on because I was taking in so many uh, African-Americans and their stand-up. Um, and I just feel like I got to, got to a point in life where I felt, you know, following the credit crunch and was having a bad time within the industry. I was like, I just want to give this a go and maybe try something I actually enjoy doing and the rest is the present, I guess. Um, but I think, yeah, comedy in the last, especially maybe the last five years, I've seen significant changes in terms of, like I said, following my nomination. Um, I think it became a point of principle for a lot more uh, larger, more established agencies and uh, some of the stakeholders in comedy to start looking for and curating black and brown acts mm. and, uh, and Asian acts as well. So it's definitely changed that. And uh, yeah, my manager and I, we kind of joke about the fact that after I got nominated and after I did Live at the Apollo, then, you know, every agent was trying to find himself a black actor to kind of replicate the same success. Mm. So, yeah, it, it was kind of like, you know, when, when Eminem became successful and every other like rap label wanted to have a white artist, it's kind of the reverse kind of happened with me. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's been, but it's been, it's been cool. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely, a, and I think it's also showed a lot of uh, my predecessors before who felt like uh, institutions like the Edinburgh Fringe, despite being the, large, the largest arts festival in the world, was something that was kind of obscured from them. Mm. Um, and I think I've noticed a lot more of the comics that I know are known from the uh, what's referred to as the Black Circuit are going to Edinburgh. And there's a lot of people becoming a lot more, more aware of the various avenues that their art and creativity can take um, because they're now uh, being able to become aware of, yeah, just basically different divergent paths that you can, in terms of this art form. So, mm. yeah, it's been really good in that respect. I, I think it's... Uh, you know, I don't, I don't need a statue or any kind of commemoration. It really was about my manager. And I just wanted to have a pact where we would work towards changing the uh, the uh, landscape of British comedy. And we feel like we're, we're doing that very well. Well, that brings me nicely onto a point that um, Sir Lenny Henry made just uh, last year at uh, a TV industry award ceremony where he basically called out the industry um, describing the pace of change as glacial when it comes to improving representation um, of BAME groups um, in but both on screen and behind the camera. Um, do you feel like that would be a description you would also assign to the comedy circuit or have you seen more improvements? It sounds like you're more positive about comedy. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm definitely more positive about comedy. And I think one of the reasons that's made me so much more optimistic about it is the fact that now a lot of uh, black and brown creatives are able to circumvent the historic gatekeepers and people that are maybe more disconnected with their culture uh, are able to, like, you know, directly uh, interact and engage with uh, the audiences through social media. So that's definitely helped. But I, mm. I completely agree with uh, Sir Lenny Henry's uh, description in terms of changes being quite glacial. I think on a larger industrial level, what we've seen really is uh, there's almost like one spot. If you think about uh, comedy in terms of a panel show, there seems to be one spot that's maybe dedicated to what people may see as an anomaly in terms of like your uh, aesthetic for a panel show where you're normally going to have, you know, uh, either uh, white, heterosexual, cisgender men um, and potentially maybe a middle class uh, homosexual white man and uh, and then and maybe and maybe a woman and that, that was a battle unto itself but I think there's always seems to be a space reserved but that's not exclusively for a place for you know black Asian or you know or brown representation that's that's something that we have to compete with uh, all of the aforementioned people of various ethnicities uh, reality stars internet stars but 
it's all well, I guess LGBT acts and we're all kind of lumped together as this uh I guess this contingent of uh, anomaly acts and it, it, we kind of have to compete with one another for that particular space so there's a lot mm. more work that needs to be done in that respect and as I said I, I always find it uh quite saddening to know that someone with as much legacy in comedy as Lenny Henry from his own mouth has to still have to complain about a lack of uh, industrial opportunity for for black creatives or BAME creatives as he uh, coined the term. Mm. Now, in the beginning of this um, series, I, I always give an introduction where I describe what whiteness means to me. What would be your description of whiteness? And is it a term that you find helpful in conversations around race and racism? I, I mean, I find it, I find it quite uh, helpful, but I just think it's, it's really a term that's very hard to describe to most other people because I feel like scientifically or biologically speaking, uh, any if any scientist or biologist or even Darwinist who's worth uh, their weight in in, uh, in knowledge can tell you that race is essentially a construct, and by the, just by the definition of species, like there is no difference between the races. Uh, mm -hmm. Me, I guess it's whiteness is more of a kind of quasi-political ideology for people that identify or have an affinity with what they consider to be, I guess, predominantly white uh, Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture. Mm -hmm. And I guess the the and the uh, post imperial influence that that uh, that ethnicity has had over you know some parts of the world means that you know you have some people that identify with this concept of whiteness, which I guess uh, as a term was coined and exists because uh, historically in America where there was a fear of uh, slaves uh, galvanizing with uh, white and European slaves and indentured workers potentially overthrow the powers that be. So as an ideology, whiteness is can be created to uh, yeah, I guess galvanize your, you know, Western European or your, your Baltic European uh, and I guess people that identify with the uh, empire as a benevolent uh, institution. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I guess whiteness is really about, you know, people who identify with the tenets and the ideas and practices of, uh, you know, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and, yeah, anyone who kind of identifies with that. And, and in your experience, how does whiteness manifest itself in the comedy world? Um, I think particularly in the British industry, uh, the, the biggest indicator of whiteness would be that, yeah, I guess you have to take into account the fact that it's very frequently said in the UK that uh, class breeds division as much as race does. Now, I feel like personally to suggest that would be kind of reducing the uh, severity of the issue of race relations in this country. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I also feel like classism and racism in this country combine to form a dual regressive ideology of placism, mm -hmm. uh, which is more of like a social chauvinism, whereby um, if you appear a certain way, you are immediately kind of relegated to being a working class comic and people will have those preconceptions of you. Um, and I think, yeah, whiteness kind of manifests in comedy, really, in terms of I think it's more to do with narrative and subject matter and um yeah, I think it's a, a failure of identification with other races uh, because I guess it's more of a class stratification. So normally the most white things I hear, or things that I guess I associate with whiteness in comedy would be, yeah, usual subject matter, maybe uh, appearance. And uh, yeah, there's a, a somewhat of a social detachment where in this country, um, styles of subgenres of comedy like whimsy or surrealism, mm -hmm. tend, they tend to kind of prevail because those who are the gatekeepers and I suppose the captains of this industry do either do not acknowledge or don't really have the wherewithal to discuss race relations. 
So yeah, the, the usually the, the white the whitest comics and the, the comics that identify the most with whiteness are the ones that really don't discuss anything else other than whiteness in their material. Mhm. Interesting. And and have you got any particular anecdotes that you might be able to share with us that provide an insight for us in terms of what your experience of whiteness has been in the industry? Any particular anecdotes on that? Well, I, issue? I think a lot. I think a large part of it is tends to be like a lot of qualification. Uh, amongst sometimes uh, upper upper working class or like uh, I guess newly people that newly gentrify London, I found a lot of the time that um, one of the most typical anecdotes would be I think I was listening to a comic and she was a white comic who referred to uh, she's making a reference to hummus and uh, I think we may do maybe a panel show and she was uh, yes we're doing a panel show and she'd refer to hummus or something I said I made a spit out of hummus and I was kind of like. You guys know you didn't invent that stuff, right? <laughs> that, Not, that that or yoga. So for, for real. And that needed clarifying. Yes. And not necessarily aggressively, but yeah, in in a style that you were doing comedy, just to be like, you know, you are sleepwalking into uh, cultural appropriation if you didn't realise. So I'm happy mm. to I'm ha- I'm happy to pull you back from the brink and give you the benefit of the doubt. But I was just gonna <laughs> let you know. But, um, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a few things, but it, yeah, they kind of tend to re- revolve around certain cultural indicators, whether it's where somebody lives and their interaction with people that live there. Uh, as I said, diet. A lot of people try to, I guess, qualify their class status based on their diet. Mm-hmm. And uh, and um, yeah, I think those are and and yeah, and this is kind of the use of surrealism, where it's like how people are able to overlook so much uh, social uh, and racial issues and kind of just talk about stuff that doesn't really exist. Mm. which yeah it's the weirdest thing because especially where people are uh you know trying to prosper on the merit of being observational comedians i'm like this stuff is glaringly obvious to see and it never tends to feature in any of your narrative which i've always found i've always been very cynical about which i think is an interesting feature of whiteness in my view which is that it does obscure your ability to see not just the humanity of individual people who are excluded from whiteness but their experiences of life right um, one of the things I find really interesting when I read particularly African-American authors who write about whiteness and thinking of J- James Baldwin or Bell Hooks that they describe um, whiteness as I always think oh, imagine if a majority of white people actually read what whiteness looks like to people excluded from it because Bell Hooks describes it as terror you know, growing up in a segregated America for her, you know, whiteness was terror. She was terrified of white people. And that was an entirely understandable experience given the um, tyrannical conditions under which she was growing up. But how frequently do many people who are racialized as white actually take on board what whiteness means when in fact we have a conversation regularly I guess about you know how many times have I watched interviews where whether it's you know black or brown comedians or actors or or asked you know what's it like being you know a black comedian it's like well what's it like being a white presenter um um, but these these issues are rarely flipped on their head in that way well one of the things I was going to ask you about in comedy actually on that note is about um I, I always think of comedy as sort of a co- uh, an acerbic commentary on society right so it's sometimes yeah. um or at least often the best comedy for me is the comedy that uh, really makes a, a, a pertinent uh, social critique uh, in a way that is so flippant that you can't really argue with it but in that sense do you feel that maybe 
the disparity of voices says something about who we consider to be legitimate in expressing their commentary on society versus those who maybe aren't permitted a critique or is that a stretch in your mind? No, I, I think you're very, very accurate. I, I personally feel like one of the things that have caused great damage to potential race relations in this country has been the lack of alternate voices uh, to provide, you know, a narrative um, and just basically give, you know, because I'm aware that it's not just an issue where, you know, white people are by design racist and, and uh, unwilling to learn more about other cultures. I think it's just a really issue the fact that they've, it's been obscured from them for so long and the, you know, media, media, mainstream media have kind of stoked this fire of associating black people with this sense of anger. So it, it gives the people a lot more trepidation into entertaining our narrative and mm -hmm. just hearing about our journeys. And um, yeah, it's a real issue where I guess for a long time, uh, the, the industry kind of wouldn't really take comics based on meritocracy. It'd be more how it will be a function of how palatable that audience is to predominantly mainstream uh, middle class white audiences. Mm. Uh, you know, so you typically fight like, so for example, if you look at a comic like Ramesh Ranga Nathan, yeah. who you know, has, a, has, a, has an affinity for hip hop and even has a Richard Pryor tattoo on his arm. It's like, how is it that you can get a Richard Pryor tattoo on television, but you can't get a Richard Pryor equivalent on television? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I, th I, think, I think for so, for so many white audiences, they've uh, been so detached, such a detachment has been entered between them and the black aesthetic. You know, they look at someone like Catherine Ryan, for example, dancing to Beyonce and being a single mother, and those would be enough cultural indicators for her to be as black as they can accept. And, you know, mm. very, similar, very similar with Romesh, where it's like, you know, his skin is darker and he likes hip hop. And, and for a lot of audiences, that's as, that's as black as it gets. So, yeah, it's been a real issue whereby you found historically a lot of the black acts that have been championed or elevated by the mainstream media are ones that don't really identify with or have an affinity with their own community, which, mm. you know, is long term damaging for those acts. Because if you are going to talk about certain issues or muse about them, if you don't have the credibility of people that share the same experience as you, then it's never really going to sell that well. And so you finally kind of get this uh, revolving door of these uh, more palatable and affable uh, black and brown acts who kind of lose their connection to their own communities. And then on a larger scale, you know, they age out of their usefulness to, uh, you know, white gatekeepers. So yeah. it's, yeah, it's, it's, def it's definitely a problem because it's like, what our audiences, we don't want to say things to make, you know, just white audiences feel better. Like everyone should have the same artistic entitlement to talk about things that might and make people uncomfortable. As long as it's genuine and, uh, and accurate, then they should be able to say whatever they want. So I think a large part of the issue has been for a very long time has just been like, you know, the gatekeepers and who they select as the uh, people to be at the forefront of our um, I guess, uh, immigrant narratives or black narratives or anything that exists outside of, I guess, dominant culture. They've uh, not been particularly meritocratic in kind of selecting the people that can actually articulate that. And that's been a real big problem, I think. Yeah, well, it sounds like in comedy, as in many other fields, that the gatekeepers of the industry are in, the, in many ways the gatekeepers of whiteness, that they've, Absolutely. whether or not, whatever their racial identity may be, and we can hazard a guess that they probably are in many cases white. Although the recent um, stats around um, by the Creative Diversity Network which was released, I think, last year, uh, has shown that actually comedy programs almost has almost twice as many on-screen contributions by Bain groups compared to 
off screen, which is an interesting side note. But I suppose from the moment that you have a group of people determining what qualifies as funny, what in many ways you're saying is either what's funny to them, and that's probably not a criticism of their worldview, or what's going to sell. And in this country, that's going to be what's going to sell to the numerical majority in the yeah. country. Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, that's a, that's a preconception. But, you know, if you look at the music industry, it, even that's been proven to be somewhat erroneous. And I think, you know, that's always been the feedback that a lot of uh, uh, black and brown creators have had to listen to is people be like, well, we don't know if people would go for it. We don't know if people would get it. Mm. And, then, and, and then you look at the Internet, whereby it's become completely democratized. Yeah. And, you, and you realize that there's kind of really no basis for um, holding people back. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think definitely sort of in TV world, the Netflix generation is being the recognition that there is a market for everything. So whatever it is that you felt couldn't be sold or at least the, the gatekeepers were telling us, well, that can't, you know, no one's going to think that's funny. Well, you know, actually a lot of people think that's funny or, you know, want to watch those types of films or series or whatever else it may be. Um, so I think, you know, do you feel like Netflix has changed the comedy scene in any way? Not, I suppose, Netflix specifically, but plat streaming platforms that are sort of streaming to a global audience where maybe the perceptions of who this has to appeal to aren't as narrow? Exactly, yeah. I think, and, and I guess Netflix is really more of a question of not uh, preventing kind of any, any narrowing of opportunities. It's more that it's proven that there is actually a considerable market for, um, you know, black and brown creatives, which really shouldn't really be a surprise. If you look at like even, you know, some of your top Hollywood earners have been, you know, your Samuel Jackson's and, you know, your uh, Eddie Murphy's. You um, have seen, you know, people like Jamie Foxx, who's historically stand-up comedian, be Oscar winners. Mm. Um, even even Daniel Kaluuya, who has had historically had some uh, radio and comedy shows and is now, you know, again, another Oscar nominee. So it's um, it's definitely helped because it means that, it's deprived uh, these gatekeepers of, of any kind of bureaucracy or any kind of reasons other than the fact that they just don't want to you know, promote black creatives as their reasons for kind of obscuring us from the industry. So, mm. so, so, so streaming platforms have been very, very effective in um, yeah, just democratizing audiences and democratizing feedback. So, you know, it's uh, streaming platforms and the, and the democratic nature of uh, social media has definitely helped out the um, struggle for black creativity to be recognized because without it, we wouldn't have a Michael Dapper. We wouldn't have a uh, Coyote Wumi, uh, a.k.a. Roll Safe, and, mm -hmm. we wouldn't have a Mo and we wouldn't have a Mo Gilligan. For sure, for sure. Well, on, on that note, um, the host of streaming oh, sorry, services... Sorry, have sorry, yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah. Also with Judy Love, because that's been, uh, you know, that's a really important point that I, I definitely have to leave out is that, you know, uh, women themselves find themselves very frequently marginalized in the comedy industry um, yeah. with a lot of with, uh, inherent with, misogyny. Women aren't funny, right? Well, I mean, the thing that's about the that, common is, that's thing a, you hear. that is the common thing you hear, but every person in this world who's ever laughed is probably a woman that made them laugh first because it's probably your mum mm -hmm. that makes you laugh and giggle and makes funny faces to you when you're a child. So the first time you actually laugh genuinely probably came from a woman in the first place. Oh, yeah, so, no, I was definitely being sarcastic in, know, in that reference because I, I, I hear it all the time and I'm like, are you actually serious that women I, are not funny? I, I'd never heard it. I'd never heard it until I started performing in the industry. That was not something I was aware of because I grew up, you know, like I said, watching sitcoms like Moesha and I also mm. watch like sitcoms with like Margaret Cho's sitcom or I'd watch 
Brett Butler's sitcom Grace Under Fire, Roseanne before she went fully racist. So, mm-hmm. you know, French and Saunders, uh, Victoria Wood had a show when I was growing up. So, you know, Dawn French was doing Vicar of Dibley and Jennifer Saunders doing Ab Fab. Like, I couldn't think of any incarnation where women couldn't be funny. Yeah. And, uh, but I guess, but, you know, for me, I'm aware that that actually kind of originates in, you know, real misogyny, whereby a lot of men would try and have leverage power with women in a paradigm of conversation by trying to make funny and being jokes or what's referred to by pickup artists and the like as negging. Mm-hmm. And um, I think because women being able to be funny and be able to quick, be able to quickly retort to a man, I think a lot of men just find that very threatening. So instead, uh, create this narrative of the idea that, um, yeah, women aren't funny. And, and I think that's also because there is a real, um, there's a real uh, subtext of feminism uh, mm-hmm. with, with female comics because, you know, for so many women, they're aware that women uh, socially aren't listened to that much and never really get to assert themselves. I even made the observation to a few of my friends where it's like, it's so funny that women are sexualized in everything apart from when they talk about sex. So, like, women... You see women having orgasms over Muller fruit corners, women having orgasms over shampoos and conditioners. Mm-hmm. But if a woman talks or, um, you know, takes autonomy over her own, own sexuality, then people will say that she's being crass or she's being crude or she's just using her sex for, um, you know, just to be successful. So, yeah. yeah. So when you and when you take that and intersect that with uh, just the black plight in general, being a black woman in comedy has been tremendously difficult. And, uh, you know, seeing people like Michaela Cole and Judy Love, you know, Tanya Moore, Haywood, Kima Bob, uh, just the list is endless of, of women who are now beginning to carve a space for themselves. But there's so much more that needs to be done. Mm. What kind of things would you like to see done in comedy to try and restore, I suppose, a better balance? Um, I think I would like for uh, industry, if they do have a genuine interest in curating and uh, utilizing the potential of black creatives is to speak to people in a consultative way that know the industry. What I find now is that even though there are uh, some more black producers and commissioners and more black people on the other side of the camera and microphone appearing in the industry, a lot of the methods that they're using to kind of research and curate talent are not particularly useful because they can go on the internet and they can find sketch comics and they can find, uh, you know, a few uh, internet sensations and inverted commas, but a lot of the people aren't ready to or nor do they have the resources invested in for them to uh, migrate that uh, style onto mainstream larger audiences. Because if you're doing 30 minute sketches, being able to turn that into like, you know, two or three minute sketches and a series of them, for potentially TV or streaming audiences is a lot more difficult. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of people that uh, can provide the uh, materials needed for a, a black creative with potential to realize that same creative vision to a larger audience. So I think they definitely have to have, have more consultation for people that are in the know. So rather than just looking on the internet, like actually go to comedy gigs and actually see people that do have the potential and people that, um, you know, have a lot of creativity and a lot of ideas, that's definitely needs to change. And I think, yeah, there's, just, there's, there's a lot of industrial arrogance and ego whereby because a lot of people have been stalwarts in their industry, they feel like they know everything. Mm. And, you know, I just think that people need to be a lot more pragmatic and open into new ideas and instead of trying to recycle pre-existing ones. So mm-hmm. I think that that, def- that definitely needs to happen. But uh, but I think I mainly think yeah, it's just um, it's a question of of what uh, the uh, movers and shakers in the industry want. If you want an art form to continue to evolve and to rival our international um, peers, then yeah. it makes sense that you know you should be employing the skills of 
a lot of black and brown creatives because you look at over America, when you have the Forbes list for like the successful global comedians, very few of them are actually white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Interesting, yeah. And that's and that's because on a global scale, I imagine a lot of white Anglo-Saxon affluent Protestants, you actually form a global minority, which means the ability yeah. to think about it. And, that's, and I'm just saying by that token, your level of relatability so far as when you're giving, you know, anecdotes about your life is going to be a lot less relatable to somebody uh, compared to someone like Russell Peters who's able to go and sell out in Mumbai because obviously the population of Asians on the subcontinent are going to be much more inclined to identify with him. So mm-hmm. I guess, it, so I guess on the, on a larger scale, it's about, you know, British comedy and British society in general, accepting like, you know, the children of immigrants as a part of British culture and then championing them with the same, uh, you know, same gusto that they would for like white comics when they go to places like Australia or Canada and, you know, other Antipodean places or to continental Europe. Mm. Uh, so I think, I think that's how the industry has changed. And I just think it's uh, rather than looking at black creatives as, you know, a little bit of outreach or like to fill quotas, mm. there needs to just be some genuine investment over the course of maybe over a year or two in, ter- in the same way they do with white accent and developing their voice and, you know, bringing in the right consultants to determine how that voice will correctly be communicated to a larger predominantly white audience yeah. and uh, I think and again to suggest that it can't be done is erroneous because you know you can just look at how the Fresh Prince ran and, ran and has his cultural impact on white Britons as did the A-Team as did uh, the Cosby show yeah um, De- Desmond's here in the UK I think yeah. I mean I don't think that was a show that was exclusively watched by black Britons I mean what, I don't yeah. know what the stats were yeah <laughs> but it was a very popular show yes I mean statistically it would be impossible for that to be the case I mean and as I say you look at uh, the music industry uh, hip-hop in particular is probably the largest cultural phenomenon that America has exported around the world since civil rights or hamburgers mm-hmm. and um and so you know it's um but and 75, 75 yeah. percent of um, hip-hop's consumers are white so yeah. You know, I just think that anyone who doesn't understand that, you know, art and artistic performance is supposed to be something that transcends the uh, material and transcends the superficial. So, you know, I've I've uh, been able to ascertain that despite what mainstream media and tabloids tell you, a lot of people outside of the home counties and outside of London aren't necessarily that racist and didn't all vote for Brexit. And, you know, there's a lot. Once you separate identity politics, and that's what art's supposed to do, is that once you can have your consciousness reach somebody else's, then it doesn't really matter what race they are. Mm. I mean, um, I was going to back up slightly on a point that you made about, um, you know, the the sort of power element in comedy, because one one thing when we say, you know, the whole women women aren't fun, funny, what it sounds like in many ways what we're actually saying is that being funny is to be the more powerful party in a conversation exactly. and that actually we struggle as society to concede power to women and we concede and we struggle to concede power to minor, um, ethnic minorities in the country and therefore black women would be particularly um, the ones that would struggle to be recognized as funny because it's a concession of power to both a woman and a minority which structurally would be groups that we consider to be less powerful and I, and I wonder with, with within that whether do you find that there is a power when you are on stage and you're able to make jokes that sort of um, touch on whiteness and make, make jokes that really um, sort of shake people's conceptions or beliefs or assumptions is there a power in that moment 
Absolutely. There is a massive power in that moment. And I think this is what the industry kind of fights against because, you know, one of the good things about comedy is that it provides an honest form of politics um, and, you know, really provides dialogue for a lot of what would be uh, typically marginalised groups. Mm. And, you know, as I said, I th- I really feel like um, the trepidation that a lot of white people have in terms of approaching issues like race relations stems from the fact that they don't see enough black people being able to talk or give an account of themselves, particularly over a certain age. And so it makes it very difficult because uh, what the only thing that we've really succeeded in doing in the UK where arts, performing arts is concerned is that we've conflated black culture with youth culture. So, you know, it does appear on one hand that you're seeing a lot more prominence from black uh, musicians, for example. But, you know, there's this weird, in the same way that it's encouraged that women aren't funny, it's almost as if a black man is over 30 or over 35, his uh, narrative is no longer relevant and he's referred to as old. And I've always seen that as very strange because, you know, I'm in my late 30s, so I'm consi- I might be considered old if I want to have any musings on the music industry. But Charlie, yeah. Slo- but Charlie Slough is in his 40s and Tim Westwood is in, is in my dad's age. And no one really says that they've aged out of the uh, of the industry. Yeah. And so that's a, that's a te- that's a trend I'm definitely trying to buck because I feel like this industry definitely conflates uh, make, still sees black life in two very binary states where we see with this kind of asexual kind of old non-threatening man like Lenny Henry and you're more of an uncle, or you're mm-hmm. more of a, this high, kind of hypersexual, phallically led uh, stud, um, as you see you know in these guys that are perpetually in their twenties in the music industry, mm-hmm. and and I just find it very strange because in comedy particularly, most comics begin to reach their prime and become uh, more proficient in their narrative when they reach their 40s-ish because of the fact that, you know, comedy, the success of comedy depends on people's abilities to, you know, recant and give anecdotes about living. And the only way you can do that is if you have the experience of having lived, which is why people begin to get into their prime in their late 30s and 40s in comedy. Makes Um, perfect sense to me, but you're uh, talking to a woman in media where we have very much similar problems um, where any woman over the age of 30, I would argue, is considered to be old by industry standards. And, you know, we've seen it on on many shows. So it is interesting that you find that also in comedy when it comes to race. And the reason why, where it's women or with, uh, you know, various races, is because of the fact that normally around your 30s 40s that's when you're probably at your most economically and politically mobile Mm. and which means that if there is someone that represents you on tv that can have a narrative that's really going to help you shape your worldview or bring a certain level of awareness that you wouldn't get from a younger person so i don't think it's an accident that these things are actually obscured from the industry interesting yeah i I think i think they know i think they know exactly what they're doing and this is why you know it's, it's not seen as anomaly or any or out of the ordinary to see white men in their 40s and 50s muse about sex and their lack of sexual prowess with their family and stuff Mm. whereas you know when you are a black person a black male especially because of the uh, fear and the hysteria around the black phallus you can't really talk uh confidently about your sexuality they they prefer to be a lot more apologetic about it so Mm. for a long time i guess uh, black people in comedy in this country have kind of existed in uh two states whereby i guess most of our detractors and most racists want to see us in prison but the uh, liberal left or the new liberal left that you see in comedy want to see us in zoos <sighs> where they, they just they just want a very wow. super, they, just want to, they want to see us in a very superficial and majestic and almost uh grateful uh state for being allowed into the industry essentially mm. so, and, and another, another more succinct way of putting it is that when you get like a lot of muslim comics who kind of were uh making their bones in comedy during the rise of Islamophobia, 
Mm. Uh, a good friend of mine, Nabil Abdul Rashid, who was recently on Britain's Got Talent, identified there's almost like two types of Muslim you get in comedy. And uh, one is uh, people that say, I'm a Muslim and, and the others that say, I'm a Muslim but. Mm. And, and those that say but are those who try and qualify themselves who would be like, oh yeah, I'm a Muslim but I'm not like the others as if that, you know, endears them to a white audience more. Mm-hmm. People that say I'm a Muslim and are in no way apologetic about their heritage and, and, and their religion. And yeah. it's a question of, I know and I'm secure enough in myself to talk about who I am really. And, uh, you know, you sh- and there should be some mutuality or some parallels in that narrative as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, all of these conversations are now obviously at the forefront of our culture because of what's going on globally. And of course, I'm referring to the Black Lives Matter protests, which have been global and they've been huge protests here uh, in the UK. Um, I mean, I'm based in London. Um, certainly, I was, have seen huge crowds of people probably in my lifetime only comparable to the Iraq war protests mm-hmm. in terms of having shut down the capital. I don't know if that's necessarily um, how we've seen it represented um, in in the public sphere. But, um, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the capital um, taken over by by a, a wide range of people galvanized behind this and, and of course the, the sociologists will tell us that there are multiple reasons why people are coming out to protest right now. Um, what are your thoughts about what's going on with with the Black Lives Matter movement here in the UK and um, what what are, you, what are your thoughts? Um, I personally feel like the just so people watching the equivalent of a snuff movie in a form of you know George Floyd's murder has definitely, you know, elicited a real uh, sentiment of outrage uh, globally. I think that's probably come about because of the fact that um, people have been on lockdown for a very long time and so haven't really had the opportunity to ignore or uh, disassociate from these kind of events as they have done historically. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I, I don't think, you know, whiteness, for, you know, go back to the, the subject of describing whiteness, a large part of, I guess, the complex of whiteness includes conformity. Um, because you uh, have a close affinity with dominant culture and it does benefit you or provide you with privilege uh, you know even though it's not maybe a conspicuous privilege that people are aware of I think for a lot of white people it's not so much about marginalizing or hating other people it's just that they enjoy the fact that you know uh, dominant culture benefits them and they don't want to rock the boat especially if if you if you are uh, if your conformity has meant your life you've led an advantageous life why, why would you change it? In the same way that, you know, there are some people that I would consider to be open-minded and, you know, but then the idea or the fear of women having equivalent power to them does unsettle them. And, uh, yeah, I think it's a very, it's a very kind of similar thing with comedy and, and, and with the whole Black Lives Matter thing is that I think a lot of people now got to see that uh, very harrowing video and that's mobilised a lot of people. And I just feel like a lot of people have just gotten to the point now where, you know, with the election of Donald Trump and with the rise of fascism that was happening globally before the Black Lives Matter protests, I think a lot of people have just kind of had enough of this regression. And yeah. so it's allowed, uh, you know, a, a, a lot more allies when it comes to uh, Black Lives Matter. And, um, you know, people and, and, and these are people's friends and stuff. And it's very hard for anyone who is a humanitarian uh, who probably had to observe a lot more of their humanity following the lockdown become aware of their mortality to watch something like that and see an innocent man get killed and not feel like they want to do something about it i mean mm. you know i i don't necessarily think this is like a acute thing where the, uh these things have just kind of come up again it's really been this has been bubbling and going on for a very long time but to watch uh it happen in such a brutal fashion i think this pushed everybody over the edge mm. 
And do, do you feel like um, this will be a watershed moment here in the UK? I mean, do you feel like the so societal wide changes that we would hope to see enacted in order to tackle structural racism will be brought in in some form as a as a result of these protests or should we have more modest aspirations or what what are your thoughts um my thoughts are not to have necessarily have modest uh, modest um aspirations but have realistic ones i suppose like I, I I always hasten to remind people that uh, racism is not just the use of epithets and slurs. It's a structural and uh, institutional phenomenon that has basically bankrolled the entire part of Western Europe and uh, has lasted for over four centuries. And to suppose that you can undo all of that work, especially when you consider the amount uh, by which uh, capitalism and uh, you know exploitation of Africa are intertwined, to yeah. try to change all of that uh, in the space of maybe a few weeks or in, in maybe in, in terms of a generation uh, is a big ask. And so I think realistically, we have to allow for the same time to rebuild uh, as the time that has been spent breaking us down. Um, but I think at this particular stage, a lot of the historic uh, methods used to pacify or distract um, crowds from these kind of issues are not going to be that effective now. I think people have been subsisting on digital media a lot more since lockdown and are becoming mm-hmm. a lot more savvy. And people aren't just uh, trying to uh, focus on mainstream media unless they're people that actively want to continue to revel in their cognitive dissonance. And yeah, I say that because um, while I think change is always going to be inevitable, evolution is inevitable as well. Yeah. uh, I think it's important for people to understand that there are a lot of people in this world who have uh, had uh, placed their entire self-esteem and self-image in the complex of being able to be superior to other people. And losing that is too much for some people because, you know, I was saying I spent a lot of time around white people and they are as equally unremarkable as any other race. Some white people are exceptional. Some people are not. And, uh, you know, some some white people are good and some people aren't so good. So, you know, for me, it's like you're not special and that's what makes us all equal. And I think Mm. there there are a lot of white people. When you consider the complex of most people who are living uh, cash rich and time poor in a developed nation like the UK, um, you know, most people aren't going to be millionaires and most people may not even own a property and most people won't even uh, achieve most of the indicators of success that are associated with whiteness. Mm-hmm. So the way that people so the way people are able to rationalize that is to think, well, it doesn't matter how little money I have. I'm always better than the richest black person. So mm-hmm. for a lot of people to look to a lot of people to lose that status and have to reflect on their own self-image is a lot for a lot. It's too much for a lot of people to bear. So I think that's that's probably one of the biggest, uh, I guess, challenges to the progress of Black Lives Matter and uh, discussing and improving race relations. So in terms of the main priorities for the UK anti-racism movement, I know a lot of people are talking about, you know, we need to make sure that we don't lose the momentum behind Black Lives Matter, that people continue to see it as something that's going to require sort of a long-term commitment to anti-racism. What are the sorts of priorities that you would like to see people focus on? Um, I think myself personally, without sounding too radical, is that I think for black people to be really heard and for this for issues to be addressed is to recognize our value within various industries within the UK and boycott them if, if they do not serve your needs and they don't recognize your value. So, mm. you know, for a long time I've been someone that's been like, if you are a player that plays in the Premier League or you play in the, um, the tiers of the Football League as a black person and you see incidences of racists, yeah. then, uh, yeah, walk off. Walk off the pitch. And, and turn down your uh, six-figure uh, weekly salary? 
I mean, <laughs> I mean, if you cut, but the thing is, which is a lot of the rubber bottle I get a lot of the time, doctor, but I look at it like this. Why are yeah. you going to, if you're going to earn 60 grand, where's the point of earning 60 grand a week when somebody on 1% or 5% of your income can throw a banana at you and demean you because he feels entitled as a white person that he's superior to you, no matter how much money you make. Despite, mm. so, so all of the indicators of masculinity that we normally accept in dominant culture, whether it's like your ability to earn and provide for a family, your physical prowess, you know, footballers have this in abundance, but at the same time, they're always, for any white man on the terrace, can reclaim his self-esteem by throwing a banana or talking down to that black person just yeah. to get, just to, re, just to retain his own self-esteem because of his, the inherent jealousy amongst a lot of white working class men where they believe football is like their birthright. Yeah. So, you know, to see a lot of black people prosper, elicits a lot of jealousy. So I think, you know, you can make a six-figure salary, but what's the point of making a six-figure salary if somebody on 5% of your income can drive behind you with these blue lights, stop you, and treat you like an under, a, a, a underclass? Mm. So, you know, I've, so I always consider that. But it's like, you know, even if you look at most footballers and, you know, a lot of professional athletes end up going bankrupt or becoming broke after they finish playing anyway. So it's like, again, you remaining silent in these issues is just going to take, have a longer toll, take, take a longer toll or a bigger toll on your on your mind and well-being. Because mm. I think even one of the guys, a former Northampton player, who became the head of racial equality for the FA. Yeah. He had a, he had a, he had a nervous breakdown himself. And then in a show he did with, on the BBC, he spoke to his dad and his dad broke down talking about like all of the racial marginalization he suffered and how it damaged his career as a footballer. And his yeah. son had, his son had no idea. Yeah. So I think, I think, yeah, for, for black people is to recognize our own worth. If someone says something racist, everybody walk off. Yeah. You may not earn, you may not earn six figures that week, but I tell you for free, Without you guys being there and without the TV rights being earned from you being there and with your shirts being sold and your likeness being sold, they're not going to do very well. Mm. You know, again, again, I urge people, I urge to remind people that, you know, the footballers considered the best in the world. None of them are white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Mm. And even yeah. and even if you're English football, English footballers or English football fans tend to celebrate England's winning of the World Cup in 1966. But I'm like, you know, the Civil Rights Act, I wasn't even signed in. So I don't even know about the level of why we why do we even take into account? any white sporting achievements that happened before sports were integrated. Mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah. Because if you think about it, I mean, if you were a white man and you, you run 100 metres, you probably won because there was no black people running. Well, I mean, yeah. sub- subsequently, obviously, that's been, uh, uh, you know, evidenced by the successes in different sports. But that, I think that that's a, a whole... We had a, an interesting conversation with Angela Saini about this stuff because there are so many um, assumptions around the biology of race. Um, Angela Saini, by the way, for those who are listening and wondering, is somebody I interviewed for one of the previous episodes, and she is a uh, journalist who specializes in uh, sort of science and race science specifically. And obviously one of the things we always hear about is the idea that certain groups are more athletic than others and um, and actually um, what, 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 where are the truths and where are not. If people want to learn more about that, you can listen to that podcast or you can listen to read her book, Superior, because she does, she does sort of debunk a lot of the um, assumptions around a sort of biological difference and looking more at sort of groups that have had to place their whole life's worth of aspirations in one moment whereas white people may have several moments where they can succeed so that particular moment doesn't carry as much what exactly i mean it may may not be the the situation may not be that like you know black people have more athletic prowess than their white counterparts but the difference between uh, a black athlete is that their their prosperity and success can be the difference between life and death and being able to feed a family so the motivations to realize you know your potential your athletic potential are very very different 
Yeah, yeah, no, and I think these are the conversations that we don't often have. I think people just have a shorthand and just think, oh, wow, well, the NBA is all, well, not all, uh, a a largely African-American dominated. Therefore, you know, it must be the African-Americans that inherently um, more physically adept at basketball. And actually, when you look at, you know, where recruiters are going and what it means to be recruited, and then once you are recruited, what it means to be, um, you know, have the opportunity to get to the NBA, um, not saying that uh, white basketball players don't want to get there, but it's it probably doesn't mean quite the same thing. Yeah, because um, if you're a white person, if you're playing college basketball as a white person, if you graduate in what you're about to graduate in, you're a lot more likely to be employed at the end of your um, academic life. Whereas if you're a black person, it's kind of touch and go. So. Yes, indeed. Um, well, look, Dane, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to us today. Um, we will continue the conversation around whiteness. Um, in the meantime, do tune in to the other episodes and you can find more at the website, www.weneedtotalkaboutwhiteness.com. Thank you so much for your time. My absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks.